This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we express our gratitude to you for all that we have and all that you have provided for us. And Father, it is so rare for us to think about that which we have in Christ and to explore the the riches that we have in Christ and to plumb the depths of all that you have given us and to even go beyond that and to begin to really exploit that which you have given us to our own advantage in a spiritual life. And Father, just such a tremendous thing that you have given us in our salvation, such uh, remarkable riches that go way beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And yet we have your word to describe these things for us that we might begin to utilize them today as we train and prepare for our future in eternity with you. Now, Father, as we study today, we pray that you might challenge us with the principles of your word and that we might come to a, a fuller understanding of our position in Christ, the riches that we have in him, and all that that means for us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 8 and 9. And as you turn there and we prepare to focus on this portion of Scripture, I want to ask a couple of questions or pose a couple of questions this morning that I want you to think about as we go through the Word this morning and as we look at what the Scriptures teaches. I want to ask the question, what makes your life full? What makes your life rich? What I want you to think about the times in your life when you were the happiest, when you were thinking that this is what life is really all about. That um, I want you to think about what made it so rich, what made it so real and so full at that particular time. And then I want us to think about how to relate that to what Scripture teaches in this passage in terms especially of all that we have in Christ. In this passage here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says it, tells us there are basically two options in life. One is to try to find a fullness of life, a richness of life, on the basis of God's Word, doing it God's way, or to try to find meaning and happiness and fulfillment in life by, by doing it our own way, finding our own path and somehow 
following Frank Sinatra's advice in that well-known song that he sang, Doing It My Way. Those are the only options. Doing It My Way may have 7 billion different variations today because that's the population of the earth. But they're all basically the same thing. They're all basically people saying, I'm not going to do what God says to do, doing it his way. I'm going to make it up on my own. I'm going to come up with my own values, my own ideas. I'm going to develop my own uh, ways of thinking. And yet all of that ultimately reflects a a unified worldview, a unified worldview that is opposed to God, opposed to his word, because Scripture teaches that there is only one truth. And that one truth is God's truth. That one truth is presented through 66 books of the Bible, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament, over 40 different authors who wrote over a 2,000-year period, and yet, even though they discuss some of the most controversial issues ever known to man, they agree 100%, and they present a unified approach to life. That is because the ultimate author of Scripture was not these 40 individuals, but was God the Holy Spirit who spoke and wrote through them. And that was recorded and preserved for us that we might come to understand those eternal truths and apply them in our own life. The problem is that all of those alternate ways are ultimately energized by the same ultimate source. Scripture identifies this individual as one of the greatest, most brilliant, most intelligent, most attractive of all of the creatures God ever made. He's known by the name Lucifer before he falls into sin and seeks to be thought of as equal to God. And following that, he is referred to by the title Shatan, meaning the accusing one, the accuser. There are a number of other different titles given to him, the devil, the tempter. Uh, he is the one who is opposed to everything that God has. And, and he is the author of a way of thinking that basically reflects uh, the two, his two primary points of his fall. One is his hostility to God, his antagonism to God, and the other is his assertion of his own autonomy, his own independence, that he can do it without God. And so if you look at all of the world's religions, whether you're talking about Islam, you're talking about Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you're talking about Buddhism, Baha'ism, uh, any of the other world religions, Hinduism, whatever, they all manifest these same characteristics, and that is independence from God. I don't need God. I can find meaning, value, purpose. I can have a rich life on this earth without God. I don't need him, and I don't need to obey him. And the other is because we uh, are asserting that autonomy, that independence from God, that anything that comes along which exposes this fraud, this hoax, that somehow we can find meaning and purpose apart from life, anything that, that even so threatens to remove that veneer of, of independence and is threatening. And so we react to it in hostility, and the more threatening it becomes, the more 
the threat of exposure of our inability to succeed and find meaning and hope and happiness apart from God, the more that's threatened, the more hostile the reaction. You just watch it sometime. Watch things on the news. Watch how people react when you read certain stories about somebody who makes some statement that comes out of the Scripture, some statement about God. Just you know, as a, as, as a focal point, just think about the reaction that occurs when somebody has the nerve to mention God in the public school system or to talk about the possi- even the possibility that everything in the universe was created as opposed to happened by just pure chance without any mention of what kind of God that is or anything about the nature of that God, but just the idea that, that pure happenstance cannot explain uh, the nature of the universe as it is, and people just go absolutely ballistic because they, they think that somehow that threatens their, their autonomy because in the core of their heart, they know it does. And then we have all of the other things that come along with that, such as uh, history, uh, especially of our nation, and what happens when anybody mentions, mentions the possibility that God or the Bible had anything to do with the founding of this country and that it influenced the founding fathers, and there's all of the moves to try to show that, well, they had this idea from from, uh, deism and that idea from uh, the Enlightenment, and the Bible didn't have anything to do with it, and just it's a constant reinventing history and rewriting history uh, so that we can try to explain life without ever making a reference to God. Because the last thing that, norm, that natural man in his normal, unfa- normal fallen, unsaved condition uh, what has is a reaction to God. That he, he rejects the idea that meaning or happiness can come from, from anything other than his own efforts, his own, his own energy. And that's the real problem because man's way at times seems to be much richer much fuller, much more real than slugging it out day to day, living the Christian life, reading our Bible every day, praying every day, going to Bible class three times a week, listening to uh, media recordings of class, studying the Word, reflecting upon God. Uh, it's just the same thing day in, day out. Where's the thrill? Where's the excitement? We have a generation that's that's been reared on the thrill of stimulation, all the video games, the music, uh, that you see it in, in the films that are coming out today, a, a constant barrage of our uh, senses of what we see and what we hear and, and where we have to, we, life is comprised of this stimulation and being boosted up to this level of, of uh, hyper uh, sensitivity to everything that's going on. And if you can't get it through the music that you're listening to or through the films, then you try to do it through drugs. You try to do it through alcohol. You try try to do it through uh, sexual experimentation. Whatever it may be, we try to find something that that gives our life meaning and reality because we know that when we go back to our home, our apartment, our bed, turn the lights off at night, then then how do we find real meaning in life? It just seems that there's something uh, empty there. So 
man is always trying to devise some way to find meaning and happiness, but the sad thing is it's just a cotton candy delusion. It seems to have substance, but as soon as you really bite into it, it just sort of disappears. The problem with all of the human viewpoint solutions to life is that they're ephemeral, they're transitory, and ultimately they're unfulfilling, and they just cannot last beyond the grave. Now, the Colossian Christians face the same kind of problem that we face in this area. They face the same problems in life. They face the same heartaches in life, the same disappointments, the same challenges. And as Christians, they face the same hostility to their belief in Christ as the only way to eternal life that you and I face. Now, their culture, just like our culture, had a variety of self-help techniques. They had their own motivational speakers and psychological gurus and religious hucksters to present a, a, a plethora of ways to find meaning and happiness in life. Some were would we might classify today as religious. Others we might classify today as, as philosophy. In their time, they would all be subsumed under the idea of philosophy. Even Josephus in his writings refers to the beliefs of the Jews in the Old Testament as a philosophy. So their idea of philosophy was something that's much broader than our idea of philosophy, and that's how the Apostle Paul is going to use the word in our passage this morning in in verse 8. And in this section that we're approaching, from verse 8 through verse 18, we're going to learn that the wealth of the winners of the world is really a delusional dream that never delivers. It's chosen only at the expense of incredible riches and glory and the happiness that every one of us owns because we're in Christ. It's our possession, but it is our possession only potentially because we have to make decisions to activate that and make that real in our life. We have to make the right choices. And so the other question that I want us to be thinking about when we think about the question of what makes our life full, what gives it meaning, what gives us real happiness is what choices are we making? Are we choosing God's way or are we choosing man's way? Now, as we have looked at this section in the past, a couple of weeks, I looked at Colossians 2, 6, and 7. I said, this is the beginning of the main thrust of this letter. And so at the opening of, of this main section, now that he's gone through this introduction, the Apostle Paul is going to punch home the main idea that he wants his readers to walk away with after they've read this, and that is that we are to walk in Christ. And I've spent a lot of time the last two weeks talking about what it means to walk in Christ. The phrase in Christ is a phrase that is uh, typically developed by the Apostle Paul, and it relates to our, our position in Christ that we have at the instant of salvation, that at that moment when we trust in Christ as Savior, we're identified with him and united with him. And so he begins with this command that we are to walk, and it really means to expand it a little bit, walk in light of or on the basis of all that you have and all that we have and have been given in Christ. 
Verse 7 talks about the basis for that, that we have already been rooted, that is, at salvation, and now we're being built up in him and established in the faith. That is, what, what establishes us, what gives us strength is the faith, that is, the doctrines of Scripture, the teaching, the principles of the Word of God. So we are to be established in it. At, notice he says, as you've been taught, because that's a focal point, we need to be taught the Word, the, it's not Sunday morning Bible class or not motivational times to go home and feel good. That may be a corollary consequence of studying the Word, but the issue is we're to study the Word, we're to be taught the Word, and then we're to abound in it with thanksgiving. The thanksgiving, when we think about Paul, and this is a little assignment for you this week as you prepare for thanksgiving, is to go through the opening introductions of the epistles in the New Testament and make a list of all the things that the Apostle Paul is thankful for. Now, if we're going to express our thankfulness on Thursday, what most people express thankfulness for are not found in those divinely inspired lists of gratitude in the introduction to these epistles. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that our priorities might be a little bit off-center in terms of the Word of God. So that may uh, give you a new insight for Thanksgiving this week. And so then we come to verse 8, where we're beginning today, and there's a warning in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. It is those, it's those first two verses that establish the foundation, the focal point of everything that we're going to talk about, everything that Paul says from now until we get to the end of chapter 3. is what it means to walk in Christ. Last time I talked about this in just a review for those of you who may not have been here, is that the Bible discusses our life as Christians in terms of two frameworks, an eternal framework and a temporal framework. We enter into this simply by trusting in Christ. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And at that instant, we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. This is called positional truth. Now, positional truth isn't a warm, fuzzy term. It's not even a user-friendly term in, in our world today. But what this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians. And once we come to understand it, we must realize that this is a profound, profound concept. This is what makes the difference between, between Christianity and everything else is because of what we have, what we have been given in Christ, the riches that are ours in Christ because we are united with Jesus and because all that he has is ours positionally. That's real. Just because it's a legal concept, just because it's a positional concept doesn't mean it's less real. It's not experiential in the sense that you feel it, that you get some sort of hot boost like you've been hit with an electric prod at the moment of salvation. 
you come to learn about it. We all come to learn about it as we study God's word and as we come to understand what we have in Christ. So this is what we have positionally. And then on the other side, we have to learn uh, through the filling of the Holy Spirit how to walk by the, and walk by the Holy Spirit, how to make actual in our lives that which is ours uh, positionally. Now, as we get into this next section, I want to point out that how Paul has already prepared us and prepared his readers for what he is about, for what he is about to say. It's all grounded in the introduction. Every idea that comes up now is an idea that has already been stated. Now, in for example, in Colossians 2.4, as he came to, the, to his conclusion, to the introduction, he brought in a warning and he said, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And I pointed out that this means that, that the world and the arguments of the world's systems of thought are attractive. They have their own logic and they appeal to the lusts of our sin nature. And so they're there is this natural affinity from our sin nature to be attractive to these to be attracted to these views because because we really have something in our system our sin nature that wants us to be able to do this without God. And so we have to make a choice that we're not going to be deceived, we're not going to follow these persuasive words. He expands on this idea in this verse we're looking at this morning, verse 8 that where he says again, beware lest anyone cheat you. And it, really the idea is going to be a little different when we get into the text. That's not the best translation. But he says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. So this expands on this idea of, of persuasive words that we saw in verse, verse 4. Then he expands, on, he will expand on the concept of the fullness that we have in Christ, which he's already mentioned in Colossians 1.19. There we read, for it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. It doesn't really define fullness there, but he comes back and defines it now in 2.9, where he says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is, all that is uh, related to God in terms of his, his essence is fully present in Christ and everything that God gives us is in Christ, and so that means that Christ is sufficient for us in whatever circumstance or situation that we have in life. Then he emphasizes the authority of Christ as the head. This has already been introduced in Colossians 1.18, speaking about Christ as the head of the body of the church. He is the authority of every believer because he is the head of the body that is the church. The church is comprised of every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior from Pentecost in A.D. 33 up to the present. This is the universal church, the true church. This is a local church. West Houston Bible Church is a local church. Uh, we hope that everyone here is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and member of the universal church, but that's not necessarily so. There may be those who've never trusted in Christ as Savior, and so you're not a uh, member of the universal church, but you may attend a local church, but that doesn't mean you are a, a believer or that you have salvation. You have salvation not by works or church membership. You have salvation only by faith in Jesus Christ, believing what he said, that he came to die on the cross for our sins. 
Uh, Colossians 2.10 develops this idea. You are, we're complete in him who is the head. That's the authority over all principality and power. That idea of principality and power has already been introduced back in 118, where we were told that he is the, um, that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. These terms, principality and powers, are used of the hierarchy the, of authority and organization within the an, uh, angelic creation, including both uh, the elect angels as well as the fallen angels. And then uh, Paul emphasizes that Christ's authority and his victory over these spiritual forces, especially the, the demonic forces, the spiritual forces of darkness, is ultimately grounded in the cross. This was also introduced earlier in Colossians 1.20, uh, that by him he reconciled all things to himself, whether things in, on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And then in 2.15 he, ex, he will expand on that idea stating that on the cross he disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So you see these ideas that we're going to cover from verse 8 down through verse 15 are ideas that have already been introduced to us, and now he's going to expand upon them so that his readers and as well as those of us today can understand what we have in Christ that this is superior to any alternative. There's Whatever the alternative may be, it, it falls so short of what we have in Christ that uh, there's, there's no need to even make a comparison. So let's begin in verse 8. Verse 8 is the negative, the warning. Verses 9 through 15 are going to expand and develop our riches in Christ, coming to understand what that means and where we get it. Verse 8 begins with the warning, though, because there's a very real threat at that time, and just as there is today, that there are ideas and viewpoints and opinions and systems of thought and religions and philosophies, all of which Paul subsumes under his concept of, of deceptive philosophies here, that are out there that, that work their way in every one of us. From the moment you were born, you begin to assimilate into your thinking even when you were just a day old, you're already trying to organize the world according to your will. Just ask your parents. Every child does. That's that assertion of autonomy from the sin nature. And from that day, you tried to make life work on your terms the way you thought it should be, the way you thought it should work. And yet, one day, hopefully, you woke up and you realized that was a failure. That, that there may be a way, as the proverb states, that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And you recognize that if you did all that you could do, you would never, ever be able to produce the righteousness God demanded. And so you recognized and learned that only Jesus could give you righteousness if you trusted in him. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God credited to you the righteousness of Christ, and God declared you to be just. And at that point, he regenerated you. You became a new creature in Christ. 
And so now you have to learn what that means, that you're a new creature, a new person in Christ. But see, there's still all this garbage in your soul that, that you picked up before you were saved. And, and if you were saved at a young age, as I was, picked up a lot of garbage later on anyway, just because the world system constantly seems to influence us. So Paul gives this warning, beware. He uses a Greek idiom here, blepo is really the verb to see, to look for something. It's used, when it's used in the imperative, it's usually used in the sense of look at something carefully, watch for something carefully. And when it uses the negative, it means to watch out so you're, to be careful not to be caught up in something, not to be deceived, uh, to watch out. So you, it could be translated, look carefully or watch out that no one deceive you or, in this case, rob you. It's a present imperative, which means that this is to uh, characterize your life on a, on a regular basis, standard operating procedure. And then the next key word that we need to understand is a word that the New King James translates as, as cheat. Now, cheating has a certain connotation. This is a rule-breaking when you're playing a game. You're trying to sneak something by your opponent and break the rules so that you can win uh, without fully abiding by the rules. And that's not really the idea of this particular uh, Greek word. It's the word suligogeo. Uh, and suligogeo has the idea of someone that is ta- something that is taken off or carried off as plunder. This is the idea of being plundered. This is the idea of a pirate ship coming along and uh, taking control of a vessel and then stealing everything off of that vessel and uh, robbing it and plundering it and carrying it off for its own use. And so the idea here is that these philosophies that are out there, these various religions that are out there, are out there, and what they will do is, is they seek to gain control of your life by basically capturing you and pulling you into their uh, thought system. And the end result is that uh, rather than having the riches of Christ, you li- you're living on all of that rusty, moth-eaten, uh, empty philosophy uh, of the world, that we, we want to avoid being carried off as plunder. We, we don't want our lives to be plundered by Satan and the cosmic system. So he says, beware lest anyone take you captive or plunder your life. And then he says um, through, that this is, how is this done? It's done through the philosophy and empty deceit. Now, this is not a statement by Paul that is opposed to, shall we say, philosophy per se. That's not how he's using it here in terms of the Greek construction. This is one of those passages in the Greek where you have two nouns or adjectives that are used uh, and both modified by one definite article. And what that does in the Greek is it shows that these two ideas are so closely connected. In some cases, they're virtually synonymous. In other cases, either one or both modify the other so that this could be uh, understood as philosophical deception or deceptive philosophy. 
philosophical deception or deceptive philosophy. And it is a phrase that Paul is, uh, is, is basically applying to all of the ways of making life work other than complete and total dependence upon Jesus Christ. He doesn't identify one particular system. He gives us some characteristics, as we'll see later on, which were present in Colossae, but he leaves it broad enough to where this can apply in any culture, in any circumstance, uh, whether it's the first century church or the 21st century church, whether it's someone living in the United States of America uh, now or it's somebody who's living in the Middle East uh, at the first century or someone living in Asia or South America, any Christian at any time is going to be confronted with the claims and the deceptions of a satanic way of thinking. And that's really how Paul is using this term philosophy. And it's used that was used that way in the ancient world in the first century, not in the technical sense that we use it today, but in as a way of applying any sort of way of anybody's philosophy of life, the way that they thought they should uh, they should live as. And uh, Josephus, who was a, um, a historian, Jewish historian, who wrote about the wars of, of the Jews, used uh, this word philosophy to refer to the various uh, different sects within Judaism, such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and others. And so it, it's a term that has a, a, has a broad claim. But this word, philosophy, is further described by two other words, Kinos and apate. Kinos means something that is empty of all intellectual, moral, spiritual value. It's empty of truth or power. It has, it's just vanity. Now, it has the appearance of presenting something that's going to work. It appeals to the lust patterns of our sin nature. It, it seems to justify our independence from God and that somehow I can make life work. And whether we're talking about the philosophies of an Oprah Winfrey or a Dr. Phil, or whether we're talking about the religious deceptions of Mormonism or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, uh, they all fall under the same category that ultimately they cannot provide solutions to life. It may appear that they do for a time, but they can't stay the course. They are empty of any spiritual our moral value. The word apate is a word that is used to refer to pleasure and, and or deceit or the deceitfulness of sensual pleasures uh, in the scriptures. It's used of the deceptiveness of wealth in Matthew 13:22. Not that there's anything wrong with wealth. If we, we've studied in our study on economics and on Tuesday night but that if we think that wealth provides meaning and value and, and happiness in life, then at that point it's deceptive. Uh, desire, lust is also deceptive in Ephesians 4.22. Sin in all of its categories is deceptive according to Hebrews 3.13. Uh, these are the kinds of things that deceive human beings into thinking that somehow we can make life work apart, uh, apart from God. In other passages, the word just means pleasure. But pleasure can be quite a distraction for us, especially today, as opposed to other periods in history, when perhaps pleasure is presented as a, a as a dominant 
uh, way of life that people live for pleasure. They're constantly looking for stimulation that brings them physical pleasure and joy and happiness, and that is what makes life life work work for them. So these these two words here, the the empty deceit, the uh, the the uh, vain uh, deceptions of philosophy, are are stated as that which takes us captive, which plunders our spiritual life, our life in Christ. And then we have an interesting change here. There's a rhythm that Paul uses, repeating the same Greek preposition three times, which is kata, because that repetition and the rhythm that comes from it uh, emphasizes what he is saying here, that this, this philosophy, this deceptive philosophy is according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and it's not according to Christ. The point is that he's making this juxtaposition. It's either Christ or it's these worldly philosophies. One or the other, there's no middle ground. You can't have one foot in one and one foot in the other. It's one or the other. And that the traditions of men that are according to the basic principles of the world is all empty philosophy and deceptive in contrast to what we have in Christ. Now, one of the key words that's given here is this word basic principles, the Greek word stoicheia. Tradition of men is pretty well understood that, that men have different traditions. Sometimes we get the idea that tradition in and of itself is bad, but biblical tradition is good. It's just the tradition of men, the tradition of the Pharisees that's wrong. The, Paul talks positively about the tradition of the fathers, going back to the Old Testament. That's good. So tradition is not in and of itself bad. It depends on the kind of tradition. So if, if the source of this is the tradition of men, the idea of kata there, according to the tradition of men, uh, speaks of the sort of the source, kata in the sense of according to or the source of the tradition of men, and according to are in, in line with the standard of this word stoicheia, the basic principles of the world. Now, there are three basic meanings that we have for this word. It's a sort of a generic term that can be applied and is applied and is used in a lot of different ways. It's used positively and negatively in the Scripture. The first way, the first meaning is that it refers to the basic elements that, that comprise the uh, understanding of the world at the time of the first century, and that is that the basic elements of the universe were earth, air, fire, and water earth, air, fire, and water. The second meaning is that this just refers to the basic or elementary principles of, of, of anything, whatever it might be. Uh, this meaning is found in the New Testament in Hebrews 5.12 where the author refers to the elementary truths of God's word. So in that sense, it just means the elementary principles of anything. You could talk about the stoicheia of bridge playing. You could talk about the stoicheia of... Uh, of football, you could talk about the stoicheia of, of uh, piano playing or violin playing or just anything. There are elementary principles, and in that sense, it has a has a has a good sense, a good nuance. And then a third sense, and you'll see this in a number of current uh, translations. The uh, today's NIV, which I wouldn't recommend for anybody, the Revised Standard Version came out in the 50s. The update, the New Revised Standard Version the New English Standard Version, the NET Bible, the uh, 
Revised English Bible, the English Version, these are all versions that translate this in the sense of spiritual beings. Now, that meaning, the problem with that meaning is that the use of storkeia to refer to spiritual beings, and we would say the demonic host, doesn't have any, any attestation or any validation in the historical record until 300 years after Christ. So there's nobody in the first century using the word with that meaning. So it, it really lacks any any historical validation this early, and it probably doesn't fit the context very well as all. So very well at all. So we need to understand just what's the sense in which the way the Apostle Paul is using it. It's not three. He's probably not using it here in in the sense of two either. And we know that because there's a similar passage in Galatians 4, verse 9. And in Galatians, Paul's dealing with the same kind of problem, and that is false teachers that have gotten into the congregation and are stirring up trouble. And in Galatians 4, 9, he says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and stoicheia? Basic elements are uh, foundational elements to which you desire again to be in in bondage. And so it looks like um, this, these elements, th- these, these uh, uh, definitions in terms of one or two really don't fit uh, here. Number two doesn't fit here. It's more than that. There's a religious connotation to that. And the only, uh, the only meaning of these three that has a religious connotation is the first one. Because in the ancient world, uh, you had uh, those that uh, worshipped, that deified the basic elements, the basic elements of, of, of nature. Uh, Philo states in his work on the Decalogue that some nations have made divinities of the four elements, earth and water and air and fire, others of the sun and moon and of the planets and fixed stars, Others, again, of the whole world. So when you talk about these four elements, it's not just talking about them as, as uh, basic chemical elements, but as what they became, the significance that they had in the culture at that time, and that is that they were, they were worshipped, they were deified. Uh, the Jews in the Old Testament were warned against this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, where Moses said, take heed, that's the same idea that we have here, it's a warning, beware, watch out for, take heed, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. That when man rejects, God, as the creator, he is driven to worship the creature, the creation, whether it's the sun, moon, and stars, or whether it's idols made of wood and stone. We all create our idols that we look to for meaning and purpose in life. But in terms of the ancient religions, the ancient idolatries from astrology and the worship of the uh, astral bodies to later fertility cults, Deuteronomy 32.17 tells us that there's a reality behind those false gods, and it's demonic. It is part of Satan's system 
so that as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32:17 that when they sacrificed to these gods and goddesses they were actually sacrificing to demons not to God to gods they did not know to new gods new arrivals that your fathers did not hear and so these false religions all have their source in Satan and all in their source in the demonic Paul reaffirms this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 2 where he's speaking of the idolatry uh, of the Greeks. He states, rather the things which the Gentiles, uh, the, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And so when we look at our passage here in Colossians 2.8, there is a warning that underlies this, that when we get caught up in and seduced by the thinking of the world, by the various systems in the world that promise life and happiness and meaning and value that aren't grounded in Christ and Christ alone, that we're getting sucked into forms of demonic thinking, that, that it's not bad enough to just, that it just falls but it has its ultimate origin in Satan and is promoted by, by the demons. Second Corinthians chapter 14 talks about the fact that Satan goes about like an angel of light, an angel of light, and his, his ministers, that is the fallen angels, as ministers of righteousness, seeking to deceive people. He's the great counterfeiter. And so people get, if you don't have the doctrine, if you're not grounded and what Paul describes as what you have been taught, uh, the faith, if you're not grounded in that, then we're easily seduced into false systems. And we follow today's versions of the teachers of the ancient world. We follow the, 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 the modified, the changed, the corrected versions of the ancient heresies. But they've just been updated to appeal to the modern mindset. But they're the same thing, the same appeal. You can make life work without God. You don't have to go to Bible class all the time. You don't have to study the Bible. You don't have to memorize promises. You don't have to have a, a daily discipline of being in the Word and, and, and a prayer, regular prayer life with God and, and, and applying the Word on a day-to-day basis. That, that's just good for some people. But, but you can make life work. You don't really need to do that. You can find happiness apart from Christ. And Paul corrects that and explains why he says what he says, starting in verse 9. He says, for in him, referring to Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to have a full life? It can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in the Word of God. It cannot be found in pursuing the pleasures of the day, the intellectual stimulation of the day. Not that some of those things might be okay in a certain context. It's great to go to movies. It's not good to think that that provides you a stimulation, that it provides meaning in life. It's great to be entertained, but entertainment doesn't equal meaning and value in life. It's great to have pleasure. We take pleasure in many things, but it is wrong to make the pleasure the center and focal point of meaning and happiness in our lives. 2.9 is 
dependent upon and expands the idea that we saw back in 119 that God brought the fullness uh, to dwell in Christ. What that fullness comprised of was not mentioned in 119, but it is here. It is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, this is an interesting passage. It goes on to say, In him, in Christ, was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. It is in Christ, in the incarnation of Christ, full humanity, full true deity, in him all the fullness dwells, and we're in him. So if the fullness of life is in Christ, and we're in him, then the only place to get the fullness is to live in light of our position in Christ because we are complete in him. It's ours positionally, it's ours potentially, but if you're not walking in Christ, then it can't be yours actually. We're complete in him who's the head of all principality and power. Now this phrase, the Godhead bodily in Colossians 2.9, is the Greek word theotes, Theotes describes the divine nature, that is, the state of God's being, according to uh, BDAG, the Arndt Gingrich uh, Dictionary of the Greek. And this is the only place this word is used. There is a similar word, theotes. Notice there's only an iota's worth of difference between the two. And this word refers to the quality or the characteristic pertaining to deity. So there's a slight difference here. And the emphasis in theotes is the state of being God, his very nature. So it's a strong statement of the full deity of Jesus Christ. But in context, it's going beyond that. It's not just saying that, well, we understand that 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 in the humanity of Jesus there was true deity, that when the eternal second person of the Trinity entered into human history, he just added humanity to his divine nature. It's saying more than that in context. It is saying that all the fullness that God can give you is fully in Jesus Christ. And if you're in him, then you have access to everything that God has given you and everything that God could possibly uh, provide for any of us, that Christ is sufficient. Our position in Christ means that we have all that we need to have the, the fullness, the richness of life that, that deep in the core of our soul we know we ought to have. We go out into the fallen world and there are times when we're faced with the ugliness and the horror of life and we think it shouldn't be this way something's wrong something's dreadfully wrong and if you read the the existential philosophy philosophers they were deeply in touch with how much the uh, world in which we live fell short of what they thought it ought to be they had no idea how to get to the truth but they understood the pain and the misery of life now, as Christians, we can face the pain and misery of life because we're in Christ. And in him, we have everything we need to face any and every circumstance. We know we live in a fallen world, but we have something that overcomes the fallen world. We have all the riches in Christ that enable us to have victory in the midst of that world. This is the point of that, that final phrase, that Christ, it, we're complete in him 
because he is the head of all principality and power. He has conquered, as we'll see when we get down to verse 15, he has conquered the principalities and powers at the cross. And when we trust in him, that victory is our victory. And so we can overcome the world, as Jesus said, and we can have that same victory in our life and experience the same fullness and happiness. But it only comes one way. And going back to the introduction, that's the choice. What is it that makes your life real and full? Is it circumstances? Is it pleasure? Is it the things of this life? Or is it a relationship with God? Because the other things, the temporal things, are temporary. They don't last. They have no staying power. The only thing that has staying power is that which is eternal, and the only eternality is Jesus Christ as God, and we have all of this in him. And so the issue is, what's your choice? Moses said, choose ye this day, life or death. It's the same choice. Are you going to look for life in Christ, or are you going to look for life in the things of the world? What's your choice? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, be challenged by the truths that are here, recognizing that each day, each moment, we have to make the same decision. Are we going to live in light of all that we have in Christ? Are we going to live on the basis of our riches in Christ, of a, live on the basis of a bank account that is full to overflowing with infinite resources, or are we going to live on the basis of the attractive, ephemeral, transitory uh, pleasures offered by the various world systems that constantly seek to distract us, deceive us, and to take us off course? Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's thinking, well, that's the kind of life I want, but I have no idea how to get it, Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you don't un- have never understood salvation before. But the Scripture teaches that salvation is a free gift. It is not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that it is in any way dependent upon who we are or what we do. It is dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross, where he paid the penalty forever for all sin, for all eternity so that simply by trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would keep us mindful of what we studied today, that we might reflect upon our ultimate, ultimate realities and what our ultimate values are, that we may live in light of our riches in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.